I was hoping to get a chance to rewatch your lightning talk that I just loved from Windy City Rails. Is there a recording of that on the internet? Yeah, totally. It's on the Windy City Rails site. Oh, I'll have to not look at that. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a thousand tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and LA bid on Ruby developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average Ruby developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the Ruby Rogues link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash Ruby Rogues. This episode is sponsored by GoChip.com. Don't you wish you could simply deploy your code every time you test pass? Wouldn't it be nice if it were tied to a nice continuous integration system? That's CodeShip. They run your code. If all your tests pass, they deploy your code automatically. For fast, free continuous delivery, check them out at CodeShip.com. Continuous delivery made simple. This episode is sponsored by Rackspace. Are you looking for a place to host your latest creation? Want terrific support, high performance, all backed by the latest open source cloud? What if you could try it for free? Try out Rackspace at rubyrogues.com slash Rackspace and get a $300 credit over six months. That's $50 per month at rubyrogues.com slash Rackspace. Snap is a hosted CI and continuous delivery that is simple and intuitive. Snap's deployment pipelines deliver fast feedback and can push healthy builds to multiple environments automatically or on demand. Snap integrates deeply with GitHub and has great support for different languages, data stores, and testing frameworks. Snap deploys your application to cloud services like Heroku, DigitalOcean, AWS, and many more. Try Snap for free. Sign up at snapci.com slash rubyrogues. Hello, and welcome to Ruby Rogues number 198, about exporting the happiness of the Ruby community to the rest of the world. Today, we have me, Jessica Kerr, and Coraline Ada Emke. Hello. And special guests, Scotty Feinberg. Hello. And Mark Bates. Howdy. So, Mark, tell us about yourself. So my name is uh, Mark Bates, and I'm uh, I live in Boston, and I'm a co-organizer of the Boston uh, RB user group. I've been doing Ruby since 2005. Um, before that, I was doing Java. Uh, I've also been doing a lot of Go. I run a weekly Go Lang screencast site called Metacast.tv. Um, so I'm in a lot of different communities, um, and I'm also a co-organizer of Happiness Conf with Scott, where. We're trying to export the values and the things that make us happy as Ruby developers to other languages um, and hopefully pick up some new things to make us happy uh, along the way. And uh, we obviously want to bring everybody else in for that ride as well. Um, and that's me. Sweet. Scott, who are you? My name is Scott Feinberg. I live in Denver, Colorado. I work for a company called WePay as their developer e-evangelist, which means I travel around and go to conferences and meetups means I get to give lots more hugs than everyone else does. I've been doing Ruby for, I guess, over four years now. As Mark said, we're organizing um, a happiness comp, which we hope to bring happiness to a lot of um, developers in the greater Boston um, area. That's me, I guess. Welcome, and thank you for joining us. Uh, Scott, I saw a lightning talk by you at Windy City Rails last year where you talked about Ruby values and 
believe you talked about bringing them to the rest of the world. I was really excited about that. Can you tell me more about that mission? Sure. So basically the concept is that we in Ruby have all these great things that we take for, I'm granted, but unfortunately, you know, or fortunately, most of us will not always write Ruby and we might, you know, go and do jobs doing other things. We might decide that we want to write Python. Maybe we go and work at a place that does PHP. Um, who knows? Um, and, you know, right now to sort of, we, in most of those other um, communities, uh, they don't have the same, I want to call them standards that we do, um, especially with, you know, testing, how we learn things, our value of the um, community. They're just things that other um, communities lack. So that is something that keeps us as Rubyists saying, oh, well, we only want to write Ruby because our community is so great because, you know, the things that we do in Ruby are so great, which keeps us from working on products that maybe we really want to work on. So the concept is, is like, how do we take the things that we do and the things that we really like and start letting other um, communities know that those things are great and also taking the things that other um, communities do that we might not do and bringing those in. So um, what are some of those community values that we want to share? You touched on a couple of them there, but what do you think defines the values of the Ruby community? It's a very interesting question because our uh, community is so spread out and uh, we value a lot of different things. But one of the major things is we're one of the only um, communities really that really values testing. And that's something that when you go and look at other people's code bases outside of Ruby, there is much less of a chance that you'll find a really thorough test suite. But also, we don't, as Rubyists, you know, we had this idea that, you know, programming should be fun and that the type of work that we do should be enjoyable. And that's something that other um, communities oftentimes don't value. And engineering isn't in the foreground as something that should be valued, as something that the engineer should be having fun doing. That's important. You know, we're one of the only um, communities that is like, oh, pairing is a thing that, like, we should do. And while, like, I've often said that, you know, people with, like, real jobs for real places don't pair all the time. You know, that's something that you'll only find at, like, certain shops. But still, like, it's something that is, is unheard of in other um, communities. They never pair. They never show off their code. They never actually get that sort of real-time feedback. We're also the only um, community that does any sort of we're, we certainly have the largest regional conferences, meetups. We're the only um, community that really does a really nice job of making sure that we actually interact with other people that aren't necessarily in our um, company. It gives us a, a chance to learn from other people, a chance to find out what other people are doing. And you, know, you can find a Ruby meetup anywhere. Like you can pretty much pick any city in the U.S. and you can find a meetup to a go-to. In other language groups, other uh, technology groups, it can be a lot harder to find. Okay, so as a participant in many other language groups, I can push back on that. There are Java user groups, there are .NET user groups, there are Clojure user groups and JavaScript user groups all over the place. So, I mean, there really are, but I have to say that in St. Louis, I go to all these user groups, and my favorite one 
okay, no, my second favorite one is the Ruby one. Because I agree with you on the part where uh, Rubyists generally have a culture of having fun with the code and also of being nice to each other. So you mentioned that it's your second favorite. Which is your favorite? <laughs> my favorite user group is definitely Lambda Lounge, which is kind of the user group incarnation of the Strange Loop conference. So it's functional and dynamic languages, hypothetically, but really it's polyglot. It's whatever people want to speak on. Today we have a meeting and it's going to be Bogus's 10 papers that every computer scientist should read twice, which is actually 11 papers because he's a real computer scientist. Um, and yeah, 10 different people will speak on those. So it's very, very mixed. And that's a combination of community that isn't dependent on Ruby, which maybe is kind of an example of how Ruby values can be decoupled from the language. Yeah, I think that that group sounds awesome. There's other examples in San Francisco of groups that have, they're mostly corporate backed, but Netflix does a great um, open source group where they bring in people from a variety of um, languages to come in and speak and they always have a packed house. And it's not specific to, they'll bring people who are writing Ruby, Python, whatever project and bring them in to speak. And it's always a really good um, turnout. The types of language groups that, you know, while they exist, they're often not as frequent. You know, pretty much every Ruby group that I've ever been to, like afterwards, like you go out to the bar and you like, you know, hang out. Most of the, of the other language groups that I've um, been to, um, including PHP, Java, it's like you go to the meetup and then the meetup's over and everyone leaves and goes home. Um, I'm used to say you can tell how good a church is by how slowly the parking lot clears after services. <laughs> that's that's perfect, you know, because you have you know you have the coffee hour afterwards, and you know people mill around and you know make friends. Yeah, exactly. It's like how you know people go to meetups not necessarily to learn things. It's oftentimes just like I want to hang out with my friends. So, you talked about polyglot conferences. Uh, how good, how effective do you think those are at sort of allowing us to absorb values from other communities and how to communicate those to other people? So Obdi's talked about this a little bit. He spoke at Midwest IO this year. So he was there presenting on, it, it was something Ruby specific. I don't remember the talk exactly, but it was a great you know, chance to go and see what people who weren't doing Ruby were um, up to. Um, so you, you you got to see these projects from people doing uh, Scala, people doing uh, um, Python. There was even some really good .NET stuff on uh, developer tools, and and they had some new ones that were um, coming out. So I think it's a matter of the willingness to go and just you know go and sit in on a talk that you might not actually know. And you might not actually, you know, know what's going on and taking away what you can. I was at that conference and it was a fantastic conference. And yeah, I spoke on Scala and other people spoke on Clojure. And Avdi actually did a web server in Bash. <laughs> which was oh, yeah. There's actually a project on GitHub, which is someone actually wrote a Bash web server. And you can actually go and like grab it and run it. It was from like two years ago. It was all, all over um, Hacker News, but it, it it was really good and it gave people an example of just sort of like something weird that you could try out. I've seen um, Polyglot conferences work really well 
in terms of that cross pollination. Great Wide Open is a great example. It's a new conference that popped up last year. But I went to CodeMash in January and I noticed that the different language groups tended to be a little clickish. And I actually overheard a group of .NET people discussing the disproportionate number of hug that are shared at Ruby conferences. And I thought that was pretty funny. Totally. So CodeMash was my first conference and it is very polyglot. There's different languages, communities mashed together. And that's when I decided I wanted to speak at Ruby conferences because Ruby developers are the most awesome. Yeah, I've noticed the same thing. I've been to a bunch of conferences and the number of hugs at Ruby conferences, it's just such a big family. That's one of the things I love about Ruby conferences. You know, you go to them and there's just, everybody's just hugging. Everybody's so excited to see each other. And you're never without a dinner date or a lunch date because there's so many people you're trying to connect with and see. And I just, when I go to other conferences, I, I just don't feel that same kind of love and happening amongst the attendees. And that's one of the things I think Scott and I would love to see brought to other places. We want to make other languages like families, like the Ruby family is. We want more hugs, basically. We want more hugs. <laughs> Thank you, Mark. But I have a question. You remarked that the Ruby conferences, yes, when you go, when I go, when when any of us go and we know a bunch of Rubyists and we're seeing people we've seen before and we're all happy to see each other, that's all well and good for us. But what about the people who've never been to a Ruby conference? That's a great point. So I've got this um, reputation, would be the word, for huge, huge lunches and dinners. Um, Ernie Miller said I'm like the Ruby Jesus because I can't have lunch with less than 12 other people, um, which, <laughs> you know, take that as, as you will. It's a thing I have. Like I said, there's so many people I want to see, but I always make a, a point of pulling in people who I've just met. And I've talked about this in other talks. When I go in in the morning, I see, you know, I'll see people and I'll make a habit of going up to somebody at breakfast, a table at breakfast, whatever, of people like I don't know. And just introducing myself and asking them, who are you? What do you do? You know, what are you, why are you here? Is this your first RubyConf or whatever? And getting to know those people because those are the new people. Those are the up and coming people who are going to be the next, you know, Chad Fowler or Ezra Z or whatever. And it's nice to get to know those people. And those people are very excited to kind of get befriended a little bit. It can be very daunting to go to a new conference. Um, and so by reaching out, I make a new friend, they make a new friend, you know, I make another connection, another, another piece of my network kind of falls into place. And then I make sure to say, hey, you know, we're going to lunch or hey, we're going to go have some drinks tonight. Why don't you come along and introduce them to other people? And it's just a great way to kind of keep that community growing and thriving and intermixing. Uh, and it's really fun. It's and sometimes to see the look on people's faces when they're out to lunch with, you know, all these big name speakers or keynoters, whatever. And they're like, this is my first RubyConf. What, what am I doing here? It's nice to see that. And it's nice to see them getting that exposure and making that family bigger. So it's up to every one of us to go and find those new people and kind of bring them into the family. There's the other side of it, which is you have these sort of generations. So, you know, over half the people that uh, went to RubyConf this year were new. It was their first Ruby um, conference that they'd ever been to. So when you throw, you know, all these like new people in one place and they see other people like talking to each other and like making friends, they'll often, you know, go out and find friends themselves. And this is something that I saw a lot at RubyConf this year was you had a lot of people who were, you know, pretty new that were going and, you know, just had just met there at um, RubyConf and they were 
going to talks together. They were making friends. And in a way that I would like to think that the rest of us set AM example for. So even if we weren't necessarily being the best at like going out and meeting these people, which we should be doing, we're still setting a um, example of like, you're at a Ruby conference, everyone is your friend, you might as well just go up and talk to them. Emma, you talked about new developers and how many new developers entering the field. I see here in Chicago, at least we have, you know, we have half a dozen different boot camps. What role do you think boot camps have in communicating and emphasizing the community values that we share? And are we in danger of watering down those values just from the sheer number of new people coming in? That's a great question. I think every time you bring in sheer numbers, it, it does hurt the community a little bit when there's just a big flood of new people coming in because it's hard to bring all those people into the fold at once. I know in Boston, we have a couple. Um, one of them is Launch Academy, which is run by um, one of my fellow Boston RB co-organizers, Dan Pickett. And he does a great job of trying to get them to be part of the community. He kind of makes it mandatory for them to attend Boston RB. And I always joke that the launchers kind of travel in swarms. <laughs> it's like they're just always together. But it's important for them to become part of the community. And it's up to these boot camps to, to make that kind of requirement of what they're doing. They can't just teach them in isolation. They have to bring them into the community. They have to make them part of the fold. So when you see someone like Launch Academy doing that, I think that's a great thing. Because um, those people are, you know, active on the mailing list and they're active at the meetings and the project nights and all those sorts of things. So it's, it's up to the, it's up to the, um, the boot camps to make that happen. And I can say that there's a couple other boot camps in Boston where I don't see that level of interaction. Um, those people aren't at the meetups and they're not active on the mailing list. They'll apply to the mailing list, but then they never post. And I don't think those people are going to get the same kind of level of education and the same feeling and the same jobs, but you know, the good jobs that the people who are active in the community are going to get. I would go farther and say that those new people are the community. Those flocks, those peer groups, they are the next Ruby community because and Chad Fowler's moved on. He's not a Ruby person anymore. And as Scott has observed, a lot of the older Rubyists who are very involved in the community, well, we've moved on to other communities. It is these new people who become the community. I don't know. You use the word hurt the community for so many people to come in. I would use the word change or evolve. Yeah, I don't know. If, I don't know if I uh, did. I say hurt. Um, <laughs> that might not have been the right choice. I kind of just meant, you know, whenever you flood anything with a ton of things, it's difficult. I think it's probably a better word. Um, it's difficult to assimilate that many people flooding in at the same time, and it's you know, it's difficult for them and it's difficult for existing people. Um, I want everybody who comes in to become part of the community, and I want everybody to get a hug. It's difficult to hug thousands of people every ten weeks. <laughs> <laughs> it's a noble goal, though. That's a good point. I've tried, and I've had many a restraining order because of it. Um, <laughs> but you know, it, it is—it's difficult, and there's a lot of you know, there's a lot of new blood in the community. And like you said, yeah, a lot of big Rubyists have moved on. I know. I like I said I've been in the Ruby community since 2005, um, and I've been doing a lot of Go over the past year. And a lot of the people I used to hug at RubyConf is now are now I'm now hugging at GopherCon because <laughs> they're kind of over there now. Um, which is, you know, a, another topic we can talk about, kind of people moving to other languages. But yeah, when I was at RubyConf, there was a lot less 
people, a lot less people I knew to give hugs to right away and a lot of new people I had to meet to give hugs to. So it's interesting and the community is changing and it is evolving and it is growing. And it's a challenge for the kind of older generation to make sure that the new generation keeps those same values and doesn't just kind of get watered down and become, you know, a Java type community. We need to make sure that, that young community has those values and, and they pass it on to the community after them as well. I think you expressed it well when you said you want to hug all of them. Where by hug, we are making a metaphor to welcome because if you don't like hugging, that is totally fine. Correct. You might want to tell people that. Otherwise, you're going to get a lot of hugs. If people want to hug me, they are certainly welcome to. I always ask first. I think that's a good approach. So Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's, great. it's better to offer hugs than attack with hugs. This is a lesson I've, I've had to learn. Yes, I don't, I'm not trying to harass people with my hugs, but everybody has an open invitation to hug me if you want to. So um, we've talked about some of the values of the Ruby community that we find uh, you know, useful and valuable and essential. I know that last year, well, the Python community was definitely ahead of the Ruby community in terms of outreach and diversity, inclusivity, putting codes of conduct in place for conferences. What other communities have values that you think we as a Ruby community should adopt? I personally don't know yet. I think it's a matter of, I think that we've done a good job in the Ruby um, community as far as diversity goes. While Python, yes, was the first one to sort of do it, I feel like now with Ruby, there's not a Ruby conference now that, that would put out their website without putting a code of conduct on it, without actually thinking about those things. And talking to a lot of um, organizers and also, you know, with Mark and I organizing um, a happiness conf, a lot of what we do is, you know, reaching out to these uh, smaller groups. In Boston, we have multiple women who code groups. There's Pi Ladies, um, there's Rails Bridge, there's Rails Girls. And, you know, reaching out to all of these groups and making sure that they're going to uh, participate, submit to uh, CFPs, you know, sending them discount codes to, you know, make sure that it's easy for them to go, and making sure that the uh, community that actually shows up at these things is a pretty diverse group. Because I think that's what makes for A, a good conference, and B, for a good um, community to have a lot of those different um, viewpoints. I uh, totally agree with the sentiment. I do want to point out, though, that we have a lot of work left to do in that realm, um, especially reaching out to people of color and from other underrepresented populations. So I'm a little hesitant to say our, our job there is done. As oh, in, I, I would never say that. Our job is far from done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're certainly not done, but, but, you know, compared to, you know, what there was that conference in Europe that, like, didn't put out a code of conduct, and then they put one out that was, like, well, we've never seen any problems before, but if it does happen, like be nice to people or something. And they didn't really think it through. I think we're at least on the right track and we continue to get better at it, but it's not a problem that will ever be necessarily solved. I think AlterConf right now is doing a great job of really uh, like setting the standard of what we can sort of strive towards. Can you tell us a bit about AlterConf? So I've never actually been to one, but from talking to people that have gone, it's an opportunity for people from less represented groups. So people of um, color, people of different um, backgrounds, both social and um, economic, to come and talk, talk about their experiences in the um, community. I know someone that spoke at a AlterConf in, uh, I believe, in New York City and now is uh, keynoting a open source bridge in Portland. 
So it's giving people that who haven't gotten the opportunity to have their voices heard, it's giving them a platform. And it's always a really interesting conversation that comes out of it. That's uh, UltraConf, I believe, is organized by Ash Dryden, and she's done a ton of work in terms of diversity and reaching out to other communities. And she's really, she's living those values through organizing UltraConf. And UltraConf, I hear, actually pays its speakers, which is another way. I mean, we talk about giving people of diverse groups an opportunity, uh, but some of those underrepresented groups are underrepresented because they don't have the opportunity to pay their way to go to conferences in order to speak. Speaking of which, Scott or Mark, have you ever been to a PyCon? I can't say I have, no. I haven't either. Hmm. It's, a, it's not a bad idea. I went to PyCon Canada because they invited me to speak and paid my way out there and generally went out of their way. I think there were like half women speakers at that PyCon. It was, it was really awesome. And they are ahead of Ruby on diversity by quite a bit. I was a much more diverse conference than the Ruby conferences I've been to in terms of gender and people of color. And there's a lot we still have to learn from other communities as well as all the stuff that we have to bring them. Totally. I think we, we have certainly seen a lot of improvement. I know when I first started going to Ruby um, conferences, they were basically just a bunch of white males getting up to speak. And now if a Ruby conference has more than 50% white males, it's surprising to me. I feel like most of the conferences that I go to, it's a lot more diverse than it used to be. But yeah, there's still like a lot of place to get better and a lot for us to learn. So what did, uh, I know you're, um, you're both, are you, are you both organizers for happiness comp? Yeah. Yes, we are. Um, what sort of outreach did you do to make sure that there was a, that there was a diverse group of speakers for happiness comp? So I personally reached out to every single group that catered to any sort of minority developers in the Boston and New York City um, area. So they were women's groups. There was Black Girls Who Code. There was Rails Girls, Rails Bridge, Pi Ladies, which I mentioned before, and Women Who Code, and also uh, to the code schools and making sure that juniors were going to be able to get to go and and actually hear what's um, going on. I also personally reached out to a lot of speakers who had heard speak um, before and just asking, hey, like, we'd love to have you speak and love to hear what you have to say just to get a diverse set into our um, CFP. How did that work out? So we haven't actually looked at the names yet for who um, submitted, but of our invited speakers, I think we've done a pretty good job of having a pretty diverse set of, of um, speakers, and we hope to continue that. Of our invited speakers so far, I don't have it in front of me, but I think we're at least half women, and I think there's five so far, so it's like, I, th I think it's three, two, but I think we've done a pretty good job so far. Sweet. So Happiness Conf, uh, what is it? What's it, what's it about? Um, Happiness Conf came out of the fact that first was like Boston didn't have a conference. We didn't have a, um, Ruby Conf. We didn't have really many community organized conferences. And I felt this was a shame because Boston, in my um, opinion, is a top tier tech, um, tech, um, city. Yet there's not that many tech conferences that actually go on there. And when they are, they're normally in Microsoft space and not in like any sort of like interesting venue. No offense, Microsoft. 
But it was a matter of like back when I was going to college in Boston, we actually had a lot of cool conferences. We had bar camps. We had a lot of cool um, hackathons. And in the past few years, those haven't really existed. So uh, at first the thought was, okay, so what if we did just did a Ruby conference? But after talking to Mark, he um, convinced me that another regional Ruby conference wasn't the um, answer. So we decided, well, what do we care about? What do we want to hear um, about? And we decided that it'd be really interesting to hear from a polyglot set of people how they manage happiness in their teams, how to via engineering process, via um, technology, via anything, do they promote um, happiness in the work that they do? So Happiness Conf was born, and it'll be at the Somerville um, Theater outside of uh, Boston, April 29th, 30th. Um, we did an episode a little while back on developer happiness. I personally lead a developer happiness team. We have Happiness Conf. Where do you think this, it, it feels like a sudden emphasis on developer happiness. Where do you think that's coming from? I think Ruby has a lot to do with it. Ruby is the language that we often talk about is optimized for developer unhappiness. It's made to make the act of programming enjoyable through the language. But I think there's, there's a lot of emphasis on it now because never, like every week, developers get more and more scarce. And so it puts us in a better position of power all the time because it is harder to hire us. It's harder to retain us. It's harder to keep us at jobs. So companies are incentivized to make us happy and make us want to be there. And there's always a talk of like Silicon Valley of, you know, oh, like free lunches and nap pods and Nerf guns and things like that. While having a ping pong table is great, actually having a process where the act of your actual work is enjoyable and is fun and is a good um, experience, that's the way to actually keep people because I can go and start a startup tomorrow that gives out, you know, three meals per day and everyone gets a kitten, but it's harder for, for, <laughs> I would work at a company that offered that. Um, but, you know, the actual uh, act of creating an engineering workflow that is enjoyable and is fun to be on that team and actually do the work that's a lot harder, and it's something that we have to constantly um, focus on. And it's one reason, um, I'm Coraline, why we're really excited to have you speak, because that's actually your job. You actually get paid every day to build those processes. Hashtag blessed. Yes, I realize I probably have the best job in the world right now. So <laughs> You talked about ping pong and kittens. I like the kitten idea. But it seems to me, it's it sort of strikes me that a lot of the trappings of Startup culture are sort of bleeding into corporate culture now as well, but they're not really culture. These are proxies for culture. How do we, you know, ping pong is, is a game. It's not a way of life. It's not an expression of values. How do we impose or, you know, find a way to live our community values when maybe we're in a corporate setting or we're in a startup setting where most of these things are basically designed to keep us at work as long as possible? I think that's actually, um, you say vote with your dollar, you know, when you're talking about consumer goods, but we can vote with our feet where developers are in a really unique position, um, particularly kind of mid senior level developers right now, because obviously there are a ton of junior developers through the boot camps to say, Hey, you know what? There are tons of jobs out there. Um, I know I get recruiter spam constantly. They're, they're there. Those jobs are there. And 
we can kind of take that back to our bosses. Um, if you have a boss, I, I don't. But if you have a boss, you can take that back to your boss and say, look, make us happy or you're going to lose your team. Um, and your team's going to go someplace where they do let you, you know, maybe work remotely or use the operating system you want to use to develop in or the tools you want to use and kind of, you know, let you enjoy your job, use the languages you want to use. We can do that. We've got the power right now. We've got those, you know, the developer scarcity. We're, you know, um, I'm not going to use the term resource um, or commodity. Um, Thank you. I hate those, I hate those terms, but we, you know, we are in demand and we do have a unique position to change our work environments for the better by exercising our ability to, to move on to a job in an environment where we can have those things, where they do care about making us happy. Um, and it doesn't, you know, it's funny, developers don't actually ask for a lot to be happy. Like things like ping pong tables and, you know, beer on Fridays, like, that's great. Like, we, we're not going to say no to those things. But we really just want, like, give me a mechanical keyboard. Let me work from home. <laughs> like, you know, let me let me use a Mac or whatever. Like, we don't actually ask for a lot to make us happy. And I think if we can kind of get that into the corporate culture of, you know, hey, just give these guys kind of the, 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 these people rather, the, the things, the few things they want, and they'll be happy and they'll code and you know, they'll tell everybody what a great company are and make hiring easier, right? It's a win for everybody. It's a win for the developers. It's a win for corporate to make the environments better, right? Make it easier to hire, make it easier to retain. And retaining developers is really key and important in a market like this. So basically, why focus on developer happiness? Because we can! <laughs> exactly. It's a unique time. It's unlike any other period, I think, in developer history where we, you know, finally have this upper hand of the scarcity and, you know, saying, hey, look, we want these things. And like I said, the things we're asking for aren't outrageous. We're not asking for insane amounts of money and insane, you know, this thing and that thing. We just want to be treated with respect and we want it to be treated in a way that lets us just do our jobs and make us happy while we're doing our jobs. And we'll do a better job for you in the end of the day. All of these things, the mechanical keyboards, the working from home, those are trappings of just let us get our job done. In the end, what we want to be happy is, uh, for me anyway, and for a lot of my friends, is to be productive. These things are not in conflict. Right. I just, you know, basically a lot for me is just get out of my way. <laughs> just let me code. Yeah. You know, get rid of those processes, those heavyweight documentation, the waterfall and you know, just the, the real information I need. Give me the connection to the users and just let us solve their problems in the best way we possibly can. Exactly. It's not like I said, we're not asking for a lot. <laughs> we really, we really aren't. I just got back from the Pluralsight Author Summit and I was super impressed with all of the Pluralsight company and the way they run their company. It is very much focused around employees being happy and employees being able to do their jobs and come up with ideas and improve things at their own initiative. I want more companies like that. Do you think it's possible to start companies, uh, to change existing companies to be, be more like that? Or is it up to us to start those companies? One thing um, that we talked about at the summit in a session in an open space led by their chief culture officer, Keith, was that in hierarchical organizations, culture has to come from the top. There are exceptions of you can have, and I've, I've had this before at big companies, a really good umbrella manager 
umbrella in the sense that when the crap rolls downhill, he's holding up an umbrella and keeping it off of his team. And that manager can be the point of translation that keeps a beautiful culture underneath in spite of a toxic culture upward. That's a rare thing to find, and it's a beautiful thing if you can find it. Otherwise, man, I don't know about changing existing companies. I know I had a bad experience with that at a company I worked for a couple of years ago. It was a, it was a large corporation. They were mature. They were definitely not a startup. And I got pushed back on pair programming. I got pushed back on estimates, including time for testing. It was a really difficult sell. And I had to revert to, you know, statistics on how pairing increases productivity. It was, there was no trust there for the developers. So of course I got out of there after realizing that it was an uphill battle, but I did my best to sort of bring those values in, but they just didn't take. Yeah, it's hard. There's a lot of inertia in kind of existing organizations. It's very hard to break through. I, I, I've, I've, you're saying, I've had the same experience in the past as you trying to fight that fight and unfortunately losing. Um, and it's a very, it's a very upsetting thing to have to walk away from that because you want to help your, your fellow developers out, but eventually just like it's not worth it. They're, the CEO is not going to change. The organization is not going to change. Um, and you have to then take your own happiness into account and get out. It's, it's, it's sad when that happens. I think there's, there are chances as people are able to move into roles of more um, influence. If you get hired as a VP of engineering at a um, company, someplace where you know that you can have the influence to actually make those changes, that is awesome. And at that point, you should be able to sort of dictate. Those are the values that your team can actually have. But yeah, I think it's really hard when you are the only one that really cares. 